This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. What do you think someone who knew nothing about Jesus Christ would conclude about Christianity based on observing believers in this church? Lions Bible Church. Now let's say, let's say we give this person three months to interview a bunch of you to attend our worship services, to participate in various ministries, to follow you around. Okay? And then after three months, we, we give this researcher a New Testament, ask them to read it and study it in one month. I wonder what this researcher would conclude. Now, I suspect that even a cursory reading of the New Testament would reveal that the Christian life is hard. That the Christians will face many obstacles and opposition. That they can, in in spite of that, nevertheless, endure joyfully and faithfully throughout their lives. Here's the question. Would this researcher conclude Alliance Bible Church faithfully mirrors what they have discovered to be true after reading the New Testament? As I prepared this message and, and pondered 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11, I began to realize this passage is actually a superb summation of how the Christian life is to be lived. See, as Christians, we have one foot in the world and we've got one foot in the kingdom. And we live in both simultaneously. So how do we do that? This passage is actually a fantastic summary of the entire book of 1 Peter, which is addressing that. And this, these verses are talking about two, these two arenas, our, our, our life in the world and our life with each other as believers. So let's take a look at it together. I want to read chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. It's a window into the nature of the hardship these believers are facing. We've talked before that this is not, to our knowledge, it's not gotten to the point where this is state-sponsored persecution that has resulted in loss of life. It's local, it's spasmodic, it's with your neighbors, it's with your co-workers, it's with family members. They malign you. You're not participating in this and they malign you because of it. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the exile's way with the world and the exile's way with other exiles. As a believer, you are a pilgrim, a sojourner, an exile, an alien. Peter's addressing you, and he's saying, okay, here's how you work with the world. Here's how you work with each other as fellow believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ in the same family. First, the exile's way with the world. I think Peter's got three strategies for us. Three strategies for living as a social outcast in an unbelieving world. Three strategies. Number one, arm yourself. Now, I realize some of you might be thinking, well, it's about time. Don't jump the gun. I know, I hate that kind of humor as well. Arm yourself. This is a military metaphor, and it implies warlike conditions. Christian, you're in warlike conditions. As exiles, as sojourners, we're in warlike conditions. It it implies attributes like discipline and grit are going to be needed to live the Christian life. Now, obviously, Peter is not talking about physical weaponry that we arm ourselves with. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. More literally, he's saying, arm yourselves with a thought. Arm yourselves with a thought. And what is the thought? The intention to suffer. Arm yourselves with thought patterns that chart your course through suffering to glory. In other words, prepare to suffer unjustly for living a righteous life, just as Jesus suffered unjustly for living a righteous life. He's saying, arm yourselves with that thought. Now, the imagery of arming oneself is very helpful. Um, You might have a weapon in the bedroom, but if you're assaulted in your driveway, you are unarmed. You're not armed unless you have your weapon on your person. A lot of Christians know that suffering for being a Christian is a possibility, but they're storing that thought in the bedroom. To arm yourself with the same way of thinking as that of Jesus is to keep on your person continually The thought of suffering for the sake of following Christ. Don't store that in the bedroom. You have to keep that on your person. Keep it on your person. You go to work with that thought. You go to school with that thought. You go on vacation with that thought. You go grocery shopping with that thought. Arm yourselves with this kind of thinking. Prepare to suffer unjustly for following Christ. You keep that on you at all times. That's strategy number one. Strategy number two, choose suffering over sin. The point that Peter is making in verses one through four is not that believers who who suffer for following Christ have attained sinless perfection. 
But those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith show that they have triumphed over sin. That is, they have ceased participating in the sinful activities of unbelievers and have endured the criticisms that come from those decisions. Pagan people often have viewed Christians as killjoys who live gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which Christians of the first century typically abstained were the popular forms of Roman entertainment. The theater with its risque performances. The chariot races. The gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. Christians abstained from these kinds of things. And this gained them the reputation of being traitors to the Roman way of life. Now, there are six vices listed. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The first five all refer to practices that have in common a lack of self-control. They are birthed out of unrestrained desires for food, sex, and drink. And it affords us a good opportunity to review our doctrine of sin. See, a lot of people see sin as just breaking the rules. Sin is disobeying the Ten Commandments. But the Bible's presentation of sin is is a little more nuanced than that. And we see that implied here. Take, Take the obvious one. Take sex. Sex can be sinful. Sex can be good. Which one depends on the context in which it's taking place. Within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, it is good. Outside of that context, it is sinful. There are analogies in the natural world all around us that illustrate this. Think about water. Water in the belly is a good thing. You actually need it. It it provides you with flourishing. It meets needs. It, It does that. Water in the lungs is lethal. A good thing in the wrong place can be Destructive. Engaging in good behaviors in wrong contexts can render the behavior sinful. Another aspect that one sees in this list is the notion of excessive or inordinate. Sin is engaging in a good thing in a wrong context. Sin is also engaging in a good thing too much. We could think through dozens of examples here. Money is a good thing. But when desire for it becomes inordinate or excessive, what happens? List it off. (laughs) Workaholism. Dishonest business practices. Greed. A deep, dark depression when the checking account balance is low. Stinginess. So with the issue of sin, often it's not what we want that's the problem. It's how much we want it that is. Sin is taking a good thing and turning it into a gotta-have-it thing. These are the aspects to the first five vices that Peter lists here, but there's an additional vice. That's lawless idolatry. Now, let's remember context here. Christians are enduring ridicule from their neighbors or co-workers, family members, maybe a city or village here or there, for not engaging in these types of things. Why? Well, disengaging from the way in which they used to live pegged them as traitors to the Roman way of life. And this final vice was closely bound up with Rome's religious system. Rome was a polytheistic empire. They had gods and goddesses for everything. 
Absolutely everything. Let me give you some examples. These are gods and goddesses you've probably never heard before. Robigo was the Roman god of crops or grain disease. You know how this worked, right? If, if your livelihood depends on a good grain harvest, you were very concerned to make sure that Robigo was at least placated, if not very pleased with you. And if a, a grain disease hits your crop, you knew that you had done something to tick off Robigo. Swadella is the goddess of persuasion. You're negotiating a business deal, and it doesn't work out for you. Well, chances are, at some point during the last year, you displeased Swadella. Did not give her the attention, or the necessary sacrifices, or the scratching of the back to bless your efforts in this business endeavor. Verminus is the god of cattle worms. I'm telling you, they had a god or goddess for absolutely everything. In life, you know how this works, okay? You've got cattle, they got cattle worms. Well, you screwed something up, Verminus. Pomona was the goddess of fruit trees, orchards, and gardens. Hundreds of these. Listen, every detail of Roman life was connected in some way to their religious system. To leave Roman religion was not seen by Romans as a personal individual choice like we might do today. Well, good for you. Lord bless you. No. It was not seen as a personal individual choice. It was seen as a decision that impacted them. By virtue of forsaking the gods of Rome, Christians could be blamed for anything bad that happens within the broader Roman culture, i.e. the fire and Nero. If there was famine, it was the Christians' fault because they didn't placate the necessary gods or goddesses. If they were threatened and defeated by enemies, same thing. Christians must have done something to mess it up with the gods and goddesses. So, if some hardship befalls an entire nation, might there be a chance the unbelieving community would blame Christians because they refused to bow to the appropriate God? So, sin and idolatry doesn't just take individual forms, like the choice to have sex outside of marriage, or the choice to drink too much alcohol, or the choice to hoard money and possessions. No, sin and idolatry take on corporate forms, where the society at large believes that the citizenship engages in the right religious practices, things will go well with that society. And of course, Christians didn't and haven't gone along with that because they're worshiping the wrong God, who is no God at all. And what does Peter say? The unbelieving world is surprised when you join, don't join in on these things. In other words, he's saying it's good you didn't go along with that. It's good you didn't go along with that. Even if it means you have to suffer for it. Because the choice to sin or suffer, it is better to suffer. Thomas Manton was a Puritan who... Um, preached a sermon on Hebrews 11. It contained within his sermon are 16 reasons. The greatest suffering is better than the smallest sin. Let me mention three. I'll just quote him. In suffering, the offense is done to us, but in sinning, the offense is done to God. And what are we to God? It is nothing, he writes to explain this, it is nothing to offend and weary men. But to offend God and weary God, that is the highest aggravation. 
Isaiah 7, 13. It is a small thing to weary men. But will ye weary my God also? He writes, all injuries receive a value from the person against whom they are committed. Now, sin is an injury to God. And affliction is only an infringement of our outward happiness. Another reason he gives. In sufferings and persecutions, we lose the favor of men. But by sins, we lose the favor of God. And that is a sad purchase. To buy the favor of men with the offense of God. Look what difference there is between man and God. Between this life and eternity. So much difference is there between the evil of an afflicted state and the evil of a sinful state. And then he asks himself this question. Shall I hazard the love of an infinite God for the pleasure of a finite comfort? Shall I hazard eternity for a moment? One more. He says, sin is contrary to the new nature, to the noblest being. But affliction is only contrary to the old nature. It is the flesh that complains of affliction, but the spirit of it is the flesh that complains of affliction, but the spirit of sin. Paul was buffeted, scourged, and in prison, often, he writes. Yet Paul never groans for his affliction. Did you notice that in his writings? As he details his testimony, his story, his accounts. He doesn't complain about those. But he groans mightily for his sins. If any had cause to complain of affliction, Paul had. In perils often, in nakedness, in watchings, in fastings. But he complains not of them, but of sin. He writes, O wretched man, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Sin is the greatest offense to the noblest being on this side of heaven, to the new nature infused into the soul. One of the things that Manton has zeroed in on is that sin is an offense against God. Every sin is an offense against God. Every sin, in every sin, God is always the most offended party. Manton is saying it is far better to suffer through the disapproval of human beings than to risk the disapproval of the very God you're depending on to raise you from death to life and to seat you with Christ one day. The greatest suffering is better than the smallest sin. Strategies for engaging with the world. Always be prepared to suffer unjustly. Arm yourself with this thought. Keep this thought on your person. Second, to suffer is is far better than to sin. So commit to holiness even when it costs you something. Now, at this point, your blood might be boiling. Be at peace, the day of reckoning is coming. Third strategy is leave vengeance to God. First Peter 4, 5, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So once again, Peter turns our attention where? Next week? Next month? Next year? <laughs> Lord willing? He turns our attention to our ultimate hope which is being united with Christ. At no point in time in his letter does Peter create the expectation that life is going to get better the side of heaven. Your hope, Christian, is the final judgment. 
The world may enjoy favor and privileges now. They may experience social advancement and the praise of their peers now. They may be insiders. Well, we as Christians are outsiders, but present circumstances are a vapor. Short-lived. Now, Peter does not mention the final judgment to promote vindictiveness. The final judgment is meant to assure us that our perseverance in the faith matters and those who practice evil will be assessed and condemned on the final day. One day the tables will be turned. So Christians can rest assured that those who torment them now will finally be required to account for their actions before the living God. I want you to understand what a powerful resource judgment day is. It's a powerful resource. If there is no judgment day, then there are only two things to do. You lose all hope or you turn to vengeance. Either it means that the tyranny and oppression that have been so dominant over the ages will never be put right. And in the end, it makes absolutely no difference whether you live the life of justice and kindness or a life of cruelty and selfishness. If there's no judgment day, it doesn't matter. How do you have hope? If that's the case. Second, if there's no judgment day, we're going to end up needing to take up arms and go hunt down evildoers now. We'll have to take justice into our own hands. We'll have to be the judges if there's no judge. Czeslaw Miloch and Miroslav Volf, who both have lived through excruciating suffering, have written piercingly on the fact that Nazism and communism demonstrate a loss in the belief of a God of vengeance leads to violence. If human beings are free to shape life and morals any way we choose without ultimate accountability, the innate wickedness within us will inevitably lead to violence. Both of these men argue that the doctrine of God's final judgment is a necessary undergirding for human practices of love and peacemaking. Don't miss what a powerful resource judgment day is for you. So as resident aliens living in a foreign world, we are to arm ourselves with the thought of suffering unjustly. We keep that thought on our person. Everywhere you go, you've got that with you. You choose suffering over sin. The greatest suffering is better than the smallest sin. And third, leave vengeance to God. Second, Peter shifts to talking about your way with other exiles. Okay? That was your way with the world. He shifts to talking about your way with other exiles. He's got four strategies for cultivating healthy gospel community. The first is this. Love one another. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter explicitly is talking about love for one another in the church. And this earnest love doesn't speak so much to emotional intensity, but is a love that persists despite difficulties because it covers a multitude of sins. I think he's drawing on some wisdom literature here. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. What I appreciate about Peter's words here is he's realistic about life in the church. (laughs) He is saying, listen, there are going to be some offenses that take place in the church. The test of your love for one another will be to what extent you're able to overlook those. 
By overlooking, I don't mean not saying anything about it, but holding on to it. I mean not saying anything about it and not holding on to it. He's realistic. He knows it's not all going to be smooth sailing. But when you overlook an offense, you, you, stop a, you stop a cycle. See what happens when you're hurt, when you're wounded? If you don't overlook, if you don't forgive, what happens? There's a cycle. It's perpetuated. Hurt, resentment, retaliation. Hurt, resentment, retaliation. Hurt, resentment, retaliation. It keeps going and going and going and going. The only things that break that are overlooking or forgiving. It breaks the cycle. And we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, but there's an implied ingredient in the love one another exhortation. And that's humility. Pride makes us easily irritable. Write that down. Pride makes us easily offendable. He talks extensively about this in chapter 5. But the teaser to that is the absolute necessity of humility in creating a culture of love. I don't remember who it was, but it might have been Edwards who said, if only God's people would observe this virtue of humility, the love found in that community would know no end if that was true. So we love one another. Second, practice cheerful hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I find the without grumbling part convicting. I mean, what is Peter saying? He knows, he knows the toll of opening up your home to others. He knows it well. It can be a service that we grow weary of, isn't it? But recalibrating our expectations is also good. You know, sometimes we connect hospitality with Martha Stewart caliber food and presentation. Some of you do this, and you're very good at it, and we're grateful for you. But I have a confession to make. I've got a beef with you because you ruined the curve for the rest of us. (laughs) I would like, on the table, I would like for this to qualify as hospitality. Chicken noodle soup from a can in styrofoam bowls. That's hospitality. There's a humorous scene from the life of preacher and missionary E. Stanley Jones that illustrates this. Uh, he illustrates that, that hospitality doesn't always have to be five stars. Uh, he was preaching an evangelistic service among the mountaineers of Kentucky, who were very poor people at the time. And the meetings were held in this schoolhouse. And Dr. Jones recounts his experience with their hospitality, saying this, At the schoolhouse, I was invited to stay with a man and his wife, And when I arrived at their home, I saw that there was one bed. The husband said, you take the far side. And then he got in. And then his wife. I turned my face to the wall as they dressed. They stepped out while I dressed. And he says, that was real hospitality. I have slept in palaces. But the hospitality of that one bed home is the most memorable and most appreciated. You get the point? You get the point? Don't misconstrue that illustration. If you have two beds, please use them both, okay? <laughs> but you got the point. Third, use your gift for the good of others. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. 
Now notice Peter doesn't give us a master list of spiritual gifts, but he's actually very helpful. He breaks it down into two major categories, gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. I think he's recognizing something that we are both spirit in need of the oracles of God and we are body in need of material service and benefits. We're both mental and we are physical. We need both. And he says that when we do this, when we serve in these ways, either by speaking or serving, attending to the soul or the body, we do it for the good of those who benefit from it, not the one exercising it. This is where we get things backwards at times. And we insist on using the gift, but the insistence seems to derive from a place of, I need to express myself. We serve from the place of what is good for the people around me. How can I contribute to their material good or their spiritual good? Fourth strategy, last strategy, keep the end in view. The whole section, 7 to 11, starts with this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This self-controlled and sober-minded in the original form, a, a grammatical construction, it's for the sake, basically the same idea for the sake of emphasis. Compounding the emphasis, slamming the fist on the table. And it describes the ability to see things clearly for what they are and hence to act in a way appropriate for the prevailing circumstances. Call it spiritual sobriety. Spiritual sobriety. In the very first instances of drunkenness I was exposed to were in high school. And uh, one thing was not me. It was not me. The very first instances were in high school, and one thing that became very clear to me in my first experiences with, with fellow 15, 16-year-olds who were drunk is that it is very difficult to connect the drunk with reality. Incredibly difficult to connect the drunk with reality. The, the world they think they're living in and the one they're actually living in are very different, very different. Now, apply that's what Peter's saying here. He's not talking about alcohol. He's talking about a different kind of drunkenness and sobriety, a metaphorical drunkenness and sobriety, a drunkenness that comes from what, perhaps? What would the text indicate? Not living with the end in view. Not living with the end in view. Listen, having an inordinate fixation on this world will make you spiritually disconnected from reality. A lack of heavenly mindedness will leave you spiritually disconnected from reality. Being overly fixated on career will leave you drunk spiritually. Being overly fixated on politics will leave you spiritually disconnected from reality. Being overly fixated on social acceptance will leave you spiritually disconnected from reality. And when this happens, Peter seems to be saying, you will have no desire for heaven and no desire to pray. Inattentiveness to the end keeps you drunk. Inattentiveness to the end keeps you drunk. Completely disconnected 
from spiritual reality. You know, if we abandon Peter's teaching on how to live with the end in view, we, we end up with, with Neville Shute's thriller about the end of the world in his book on the beach. The novel unfolds the catastrophic results of accidental nuclear war and chronicles the ending of the world as we know it. This is what the cover copy reads. It says, in the northern hemisphere, the end had come suddenly, disastrously. In the southern hemisphere, the end would come slowly as radiation drifted in the wind. There would be time to prepare, time to seek solace in religion or alcohol or frenzied sex or in the thing that one had always wanted to do, to drive fast, an expensive car, to buy some splendid object with one's life savings, to consume the best bottles of wine from the cellar of one's club. In the end, when the sickness could not be stopped, the government would issue cyanide pills to those who waited, hoping they would not have to use them, knowing they would. It's a haunting story, and it provokes questions. What would you do if you learned all of human history was drifting towards an inevitable ending? How does one live when the end, the very end, is said to be at hand? How do you do that? Let me tell you something. Peter's given you the answer. Peter has given you God's answer. Love one another. Practice cheerful hospitality. Use your gift for the good of others. Why? Because this was how life was always meant to be lived. Whether there are a thousand years remaining or just a few minutes. This is the good life. This is the good life. And when we live this game plan for the Christian life, look at what happens. Look how he ends this. And that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Whether you've got a thousand years left or just a few minutes, you're all about the glory of God. And Peter's given you the recipe for that. Loving one another. Practicing cheerful hospitality. Using your gift of speaking or serving for the good of others. And living with the end in view. All of that equals glorify God in everything. You want to know how to live the Christian life with one another? There it is. It's the same today as it will be tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, we need your word so badly to give us eyes to see how you have designed us to live in the world and with one another. Lord, we thank you. It's clarifying. It's illuminating. And it's challenging. Lord, I have no doubt that there are um, ideas, truths that are in this text today that are confronting us. Are we really arming ourselves with the thought of being prepared to suffer unjustly? Do we keep that thought on our person every day? Lord, I know that some of us live in social contexts where we're mocked and ridiculed, maligned because we don't participate in certain aspects of, of society. Lord, help us to hold fast. 
to choose suffering over sin. Lord, we know a great day is coming when you will set all things right. When you will set all things right. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with that in view. I pray that it would serve the purpose of weaning us off the pleasures of this life and preparing us for the next. And as we do, God, I pray that our community, the church, would truly be the image of Christ in the world and the presence of Christ to the world. We pray these things because he is supremely worth it. All glory, all honor, all praise go to Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.